You're listening to another episode of The Zag, live and organic and all in one take. We're excited to be joined once more by 2012 NLC fellow Travis Centel is here. Lots to talk about. We haven't talked to him in a long time, so who knows where this will go. Stick around. You can find out. Let's do it. All right, give me the scoop on what goes into planning a birthday party when you're turning 40, because I have that problem in about 30 days. A lot of discord, a lot of fear, and a lot of weather report checking. It is, it is intense, man. Yeah, so what was the things you were weighing in terms of doing some small, large, and then share folks with what you actually decided to do? I will tell you, if people are interested in this, I'm happy to share. Um, what, uh, what I decided was in previous years, so I'm 40, everyone listening, I am 40 years old. <laughs> and I have two herniated discs in my back. Uh, so I decided a lot of the last previous, the few previous years, my friends weren't all able to come because they have kids now and they have families and they're sort of, you know, upstanding citizens. And um, I thought I want a place where all my friends can bring their kids and their kids can meet each other. And, uh, you know, my friends interacting with each other is one of the, the only reasons I have parties. It makes me so happy when friends meet each other. Because uh, I think it's it's great. And I think they'd like each other and get along. And so I wanted a bounce house. So the entire party was driven by where can I put a bounce house? And that uh, everything sort of uh, fell from that. That dictated all future decisions. So you ended up doing Airbnb, a rental of an actual house. And bounce house was there. I can confirm that. I saw it. There also was a gigantic uh, aquarium fish tank situation. What was going on there? Three, actually. Uh, oh, okay. So, <laughs> So I did, much to my friend's chagrin, I did a very poor job of planning this. I didn't look at where the house was on a map. I did not scope the parking <laughs> situation. I did not uh, confirm that I had access to the interior of the house as well as the backyard. So when the forecast called for rain and 40-degree temperatures, and I realized there was no parking, that it was basically an El Sereno, and uh, uh, there was no access to indoors, I thought, well, I've, I've made a fire festival. So great. And, um, <laughs> and then in the restroom area, uh, the guy who owned the house had converted it into an aqua farm, like a weird aquamarine like, grow, grow, grow house or something. Uh, and I asked him, I said, how long have you lived here? He said, a year. And I said, so you had to move all these in? He goes, no, no, no. I didn't have any of these before I moved in. I thought this was my opportunity to have the aquariums I always wanted. And I'm, <laughs> I asked them three 7,500-gallon aquariums in the, in the basement, basically. And the long-term plan for this would be what did he say? He, I think to not get divorced was his main plan uh, <laughs> because he was very scared his wife would make him get rid of these uh, beautiful aquariums. Uh, it seems somehow... Uh, untoward. Uh, he sort of dodged questions about it because I, I think he thought, oh, this guy thinks I'm crazy, which he's correct. I did. Mm. And yeah. uh, he said, I'm growing a couple corals and I'm going to sell them. Uh, but basically he just liked fish. I think it was, it was pretty weird. It was a pretty weird experience all around. I don't necessarily recommend it. And I thought about trying to use the aquariums as a selling point to my friends, but he said, please don't let anyone in the basement. Please don't tell anyone that there are aquariums. <laughs> So, you know, if that doesn't scream party to you guys, I don't know what you're doing with your life because it was yeah, it, was it was a knockdown drop down aquarium party. Yeah, it was fantastic. Uh never want to do it again, but I'll do it once. It was good stuff. I didn't get a chance to talk to you too much at the party, so I'm glad we can connect now. What what exactly are you working on? So for folks that don't know, you you write things, you're a content creator, you're an author. So what's the latest on what you're making? Yeah, thank you for asking. I um I wrote an episode of Electric Dreams last year, I think around the time we recorded yep, the first on episode. Amazon, yeah. Yeah, with my writing partner, Kaylin Egan. 
And um, out of that experience, became it, a lot of things happened out of the experience for us. We got signed up to do a season two. The show got canceled shortly thereafter, uh, but we got some nice little meetings and some nice traction from the promise of a second season. And the director of our um, episode uh, is a guy named Alan Taylor. If you don't know him, look him up. He just had a Vanity Fair piece come out. Um, it's wonderful. And he's been nominated for DGA awards. Just a great, great guy. Really creative, really fun, really kind. Um, he wanted to work with us some more. So we are adapting a book for him right now. And uh, we are uh, hopefully engaging in future projects with him uh, as well. So it's been a lot of like, buckle down, get some writing done. And um, we're also developing a couple TV shows and pitching those around starting next week. So lots of just sort of prep work, creative work, uh, long form outlining and stuff. It's been really fun. It's my favorite part of the process, that sort of broad stroke creative um, hammering down. The minutia is cool, but uh, not as, as fun in my opinion. And then when you're in the creative process, are you looking at the landscape of all the content that's out there? Because there's so much and you're trying to find where the inefficiencies are or where our stories aren't being told. Like what's the actual way you're trying to get stuff down? I am so untactical, man. It is, it is, (laughs) it is very strange to look at the creative process. My whole life, I, I either get really bit by an idea aggressively right out the gate and sort of go for it. That's very rare, but it happens. The other thing is it's things I can't let go of. It's just certain ideas. Uh, if it's my, by myself, I've written a couple of books. It, those all came out of ideas I just couldn't stop thinking about. And I'm like, well, I have to do something with that because otherwise I'll just go crazy. Um, or uh, I, I saw my writing partner today and we were working on this, um, this TV pitch we're doing. And I said, you know what I can't stop thinking about? This pitch from last year. We should go back and, and work that out again because it's really bothering me at night when I'm laying down. And he got excited. He's like, yeah, that's great. That's, let's work on that again. So sometimes it's just what uh, feels relevant to you at, at the time or what your subconscious is sort of like pushing on you. Um, that's what dictates all of my decisions. It is very unstrategic and very poor planning on my part, I'm sure. Uh, but, uh, but that's how it's been so far. So uh, sort of to wrap that up, the, the, as my career goes on, I'm sure there'll be more managerial input and agenting input um, into decisions that we make as a writing partnership and as a as solo writers. But um, right now, it's just, oh, what do you love? Do that. And so right now, everything I'm working on, I just love. I love it so much. And it's making me really happy to do that. So then without getting into numbers, how does all this get put together in a way that makes money for you so you can live the lifestyle that you become accustomed to, which is bouncy houses and aquariums in the basement? Yeah. Well, I aim to have a house where I can aqua farm. That's like, I have a vision board. <laughs> just it's right in the center <laughs> is the aqua farm. Yeah. It's the whole thing. I just, I just painted the, the vision board blue and I know what it means. It means water. Um, right now. So, uh, the last two years have been, been good. Uh, and right now, uh, we are working on under a contract, uh, adapting this novel into a screenplay, and we were hired to do that. And so those those checks are coming in. Um, for those of you that are interested, they're usually sort of a triple tier payment structure where you get uh, paid to turn into treatment, you get paid again when you turn in a first draft, and you get paid the last monies when you uh, do the first revision, sort of contractual contractually obligated revisions. Um, and, uh, and we're in the middle of that right now. So that's my 2019 kind of taken care of. And in the meantime, we're just trying to look for other opportunities to pitch on things. Uh, we've had the opportunity to pitch on a couple movies to some, to some studios and, and that, that will go on. Um, that's always a strange thing because you're taking two weeks out of your life to crack a story 
that you don't have the underlying IP to, the underlying intellectual property to, um, and you pitch to a studio hoping they'll hire you to adapt their story they've optioned or their book they've optioned into a screenplay. Mm-hmm. And if you, they don't select you, you can't do anything with the two weeks of work. That two weeks of work just goes away. And that's been very you know, frustrating. But I thought, well, at least we're in the, the ballpark of what active writers' lifestyles look like. So that, that's kind of heartening in a weird, perverse way. What kind of questions do you get in these rooms when you have these meetings? What, for someone that's never been in one, what would they expect to hear from folks? You know, it depends on the room. Uh, the smarter people ask you really targeted questions about how the story functions, like how it actually works. And those are great. Um, we pitched to a guy who had something like 90 producing credits, uh, who had done, done has done movie, uh, 50 movies he's done you've heard of. Like it was that level of, of freak out meeting for us. And um, his questions were amazing. He just gets how stories work. And so he asked a couple targeted pointed questions and you know we answered the best of our ability what we thought the right things were um and then sometimes you feel like sometimes you know, people are just making conversation or, or have visual aesthetic questions or hypothetical casting questions who do you see in this role that kind of stuff um it just really depends on the the room and what they're looking for i think and then do you get a chance to insert any of your progressive values in any of these things you get to talk about diversity of casting or are you conscious of any of those pieces of, of yourself and your value system when you're creating the thing to begin with. So when it's already in the room, it's, it's sort of gone through that filter. How does that, how does that work? A hundred percent. It's, but it's not, it's not like, uh, what's the best way to say this? It's not that I am trying to insert values into stories. I think the story comes first and I cannot separate the way my brain works and the way I think stories ought to work from what my values are, right? So the stories I tend to be drawn to are ones that inherently embody progressive values. And we tend to write female-centric scripts. It just is more interesting to us. Um, it's not – of course, yes, it's great. We want to put um, uh, women for, from the forefront and there's a there's an argument to be made for it sort of financially as well. Same thing with people of color. It, we, we tend to write that way because that is what's interesting to us. Um, and the other arguments sort of come later in the process for us, if I'm being honest. But the story we're writing right now, the reason I'm so drawn to it is it talks about fundamentally the metaphor of the script is what if the, the it's a magical realism script, but what if the magical part is the 60s and the promise of the 60s? And I became really interested in the sort of structural integrity of the 50s and six, early 60s in America, the homogenization, the you know, uh, nationalism, the, the sort of flag waving of the space race, cold world, as that sort of ramps up into the, into the individualism, individualism of sort of 69 to like 75, right? The breakdown, quote unquote, of American culture. And then the backlash into the 80s, sort of capitalism won this battle against the individualism and the potential of that sort of progressive movement of like late 60s, early 70s. And I thought that's so interesting. I, I'm so into that. And so a lot of the scripts we've been talking about recently and stories we've been talking about are in that space just because it's, it's, I, it feels relevant and modern to me to think about those things. Like the, the, the time that, that socialism and, and fairness and individualism had a shot, a real viable political shot was in this time period. And then the 80s just ate it for breakfast, man. The 80s, the capitalist movement just ate it. And I think, well, what if that hadn't happened? Like, what if that backlash hadn't happened? That, to me, is a good starting place for a magical story. So, you know, your values sneak in in some ways there. But I don't set out to strategically tell stories 
that are underrepresented. Um, though I, I wish I did. I think that would be awesome of me <laughs> to do that. I just, I just, I haven't started thinking that way yet. Yeah. That makes sense. Listen, when we come back, we'll talk more about what Travis is working on, some of the other things that he has opinions on when it comes to politics or content. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Zag. We'll be right back. When you're consuming 2020 presidential candidate news, how are you consuming it and what are your thoughts so far? I'm just in consumption mode. I, like I'm fully in consumption mode. Um, uh, I'm, I've been s- surprised and excited by a couple of the candidates. Um, I, I have to imagine I have pretty mainstream views. I think we're all kind of consuming and listening and taking it all in right now. I think we're all delightfully uh, surprised by Pete Buttigieg and, and some of the newcomers. I think that's I'm happy that guy's gotten some traction and people are talking about him. I find him to be really, 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 really smart. Um, so yeah, I'm in consumption place. I'm, ba- I'm basically just taking it all in for now. You know, random tangent. Did you see anything on um, the HBO documentary with Bad Blood, or read the the Bad Blood book, or follow any of that? I read, stuff? I read Bad Blood cover to cover in one yeah. sitting. I I couldn't get enough of it, man. I couldn't put it down. Yeah, same here. What, why do you think that's having a moment right now? I let's let let's let's talk about this. And, and I know you wanted to talk a little bit about the WGA, and maybe this is a good place to sort of segue into it. Um, there is a there's this weird loophole economy that's been created. And let me just let me just uh, give an overview of the um, the WGA thing real quickly. There's a strike coming up, a, a alleged possible writer strike coming up with the WGA because um, for a long time, the agencies, uh, the way the agency business works is they represent you, your fiduciary interests as a writer and get you staffed on shows. They get you jobs. They negotiate on your behalf because their financial interest is directly tied to yours. They get 10% of what you make on your deal. They have every financial financial interest to increase that fee because that increases their fee. It makes total sense. What's happened um, for a long time now is that the agencies have have acted as packaging entities, meaning they will staff a show with all of their talent. They say, we rep these writers, these directors, these actors, we'll put this together for you. You can make a show. And sometimes those negotiations would happen without the input of even the person who wrote, designed, and sold the show. That individual wasn't necessarily tied to those negotiations. Mm Long story short, what ends up happening there is that the agencies, their fiduciary interests are tied to the health of the show, not their client. So if the success of the show is where they're getting their money from, they would tell the client, hey, you, we're not even taking 10% on this. You get to t- keep your full rate. Don't worry about it. We're getting a packaging fee. And writers for a while have been like, oh, that's awesome. Great. I get an extra 10%. How cool. But on the back end, sort of behind closed doors, what's been happening is that um, agencies have been getting calls like, let's say, hypothetical call, hey, our writer's budget was really too high for season one. Can you convince your clients to take a 50% or 20% pay cut for season two? And the agencies go, yeah, no problem. I'll talk to our people. They go back to the clients and say, hey, will you take a pay cut? It's it's the best thing. Trust me. And the, the writers go, well, if my agent's saying it's the best thing, okay. And then what happens is the Agents get a higher fee because the show saves more money and makes yeah. more money, right? So it's a clear conflict of interest. And what that is, and this relates to bad blood, because I, I really feel like there's a loophole economy built in now where if you are smart enough and have enough money and leverage and economic leverage, you're allowed to get away with things in the Trump presidency and before. Um, I, I, I stand by the fact that you know, Trump is a symptom, not a 
necessarily a root cause, but this has been coming for a long time uh, everywhere. Uh, America is uniquely a grifter landscape. It's a landscape for con men, and it's a landscape for opportunists, and it's an economic landscape for just any sort of con artistry you can you can come up with. And it's just come to a head. I really think people are tired of it on both sides. And there's a fa- there's a lifelong fascination Americans have with con men. We we love it. We it's our it's in our blood. P.T. Barnum is our guy. Like we're so into the idea of the lone individual who bilks the system out of all its money and gets away with it. We just can't get enough of that guy. So I think this WGA strike is is part of this grifter economy, and it's 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 Elizabeth Holmes is part of it, and it's this fascination with how do you take a system with firm norms in place and firm laws in place and eradicate the norms and just find the loopholes in the, the the laws to get what you want. I mean, that is to me where our politics is at. It's where our economy is at. It's where all of our business and our fascination is at. So on this idea of norms and rules, I guess rules slash regulations, how do you win the day on messaging that the gentlemanly agreements that this is a norm that we'll uphold because we've always upheld it, maybe adhering to tradition, how do you scrap that so that there is legit safeguards in the terms of, of, of laws or policies or regulations that close some of these loopholes so people aren't trying to screw everybody all the time. Well, this is the thing. I, I, I've been thinking a lot about this because it's really frustrating to me with my family specifically, which mm-hmm. I'm sure came up on the last podcast. Yeah, true. I, I, it's impossible to create a company or government or any system that, that allows for every possible eventuality. You cannot legislate every eventuality. You have to set up buckets where things will be decided and things in the future you can't think of at this point. You cannot, you simply cannot legislate everything. So every norm that we have, I don't think you can legislate every norm. What that means is you have to have a culture that, um, that, prizes norms, that prizes morality, that prizes values. And I think we've done a bad job of, of saying that this is the reason that we are liberals. The reason, the underlying message that we're saying here is that we want fairness, justice, equality, and we want a strong country, a strong economy, um, and we want to succeed. It, it, we just want to set the bar in a place where everyone has the uh, possibility to succeed. And that moral message has been drowned out not through, I don't think through a lot of our fault, us meaning liberals, but through the, the tactical cudgels of the right. They've been so aggressive about the minutia because that's where they win. They win by hammering loopholes, by hammering norms, busting down those things. That, that suits them. Whereas we win by adhering to morality, norms, all those things that are under attack. And so I think retreating in a way to those basic human values – um, whether it's in business or whether it's in politics or, or whatever, I think just really saying, I think this is morally right. And there's a social cost for you if you want to say that morality doesn't matter to you. Um, there's a social cost. There's a, there's a strained family relationship that's not just about politics. It's about oh, who, are, who are you as a person? That thing that you said or posted, do you mean that? Like, I just want to know as a person, do you mean that thing that you posted? And if so, Why? And have them defend these sort of immoral decisions that are that are going on. And I and I don't mean in an attacking way, and I don't necessarily mean in a strategic way. I just mean on a base human level as a society, what kind of society do we want to live in? Is it a moral, artistic, creative society that sort of uh, spurs growth and innovation, or is it one where the strong will prevail over the weak at every turn? 
Going back to the presidential candidates, do you feel like it's then a moral argument to be made by, say, a Cory Booker or Kamala Harris or Elizabeth Warren, a moral argument to abolish the filibuster or to make D.C. and Puerto Rico states to try to balance out some of the disproportionate things that happen with the Senate being the way it is? When you talk about the tactical, Dems usually and liberals in general are not very good at that part. But I think in some ways there's a moral case to be made that these big, big ideas that we know need to match with the, the crisis of the times we're in, whether it's climate change or otherwise, there has to be tactics that match that. And if you keep falling back on norms and tradition, you're out of luck. So do you feel like that message would land if it's a moral argument to get rid of the filibuster or a moral argument to look at the Supreme Court composition and try to change it? It's a great question. I, I think I think of it is a, is a two-tier process. So for me, there needs to be a platform to speak from. And that platform, I think that there, there's this, you know, Stephen Colbert's quote, reality has a well-known liberal bias. I think that we are served best by saying, here's the, here's the data I use to arrive at this decision. Here is the uh, morals that I use to arrive at this decision. And I think the the thing that we ought to push is let's have a conversation. When it comes to gun safety, let the CDC study it. When it comes to Supreme Court, um, quote unquote, packing, let's have a conversation about the pros and cons and have an honest conversation. I do believe that honest conversation and a, and a clear-eyed look at the facts, it does uh, it is biased towards my political preference. If I didn't think that, I'd probably have a different political preference, right? So I think that we're served by encouraging open debate, honest debate, and adherence to facts at every turn. That's first and foremost. That's not tactical to me. That's just a moral statement about how I think the discourse in the world should work. Secondly, I think there is a tactical side to this. And I worry that too much of the conversation is being, being subsumed by tactics, which I agree need to be discussed and need to happen. But to me, if you build a tactical argument on a shoddy foundation, it's going to crumble because the right wing has a 40-year history of getting very, very good at tactical bludgeoning. And I don't know that we're prepared as a, as a you know, quote-unquote big tent party. I don't know that we're prepared to uh, go into that sort of battle. I, I think we feel understaffed and underarmed a little bit. So I would, I would think of it as a two-tier thing. I think um, start with that first uh, statement of values constantly, constantly, constantly. And some of our candidates are doing that very well, I think, right now. So just hit those statements of values really hard. Here's why I believe this. Here's the data I use to come at this. If there's a problem with the data, please tell me. And then it becomes a, a tactical argument. And if we have to play dirty, quote unquote, <laughs> to do that, I think we say why we're doing it. I say, okay, we don't agree with this. We're doing this to right this wrong. This Merrick Garland was a wrong. We're going to right it. And then we're going to restore the norm, et cetera. I think if, as long as we're honest about those tactics, I think tactics are super, super great. Last thing, how should I feel about turning 40 at the end of April since you've been 40 for a couple of weeks now? Let me say this to the listeners. I don't know. You, you're a very adept questioner. You have a lovely speaking voice. Thank you. Thank you're you. very calm. Mm. But, I, but I think that listeners don't get enough sense of who you are maybe as a person. They get a sense that you're a very uh, clever questioner. What listeners don't know about you is that you're basically an Adonis. And I think that, I think that people who are turning 40 who have the body of basically a sculpture – I think they should worry less than people like me who are at best a little doughy. I think I think you have a lot less to worry about than other people. So, you know, intellectually it's gonna it's gonna hammer you a little bit, mm. but uh, you just you just keep on keeping on, man. That's your that's your fucking thing. 
Can I curse on this podcast? I'm so sorry. We'll we'll figure it out later. That's good advice. Remember, the host is an Adonis. And Travis, you're a star. Appreciate you coming on. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of The Zag. You can catch all past episodes at the usual places. Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher. Get them all there. There's over 120 or so. You can even check out Travis's first episode. I think it was episode six. It's been that long. So until next time, we'll catch you soon.